Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I have a, a New Yorker uh, today here on the line uh, with me, uh, just like myself, a founder that I think we, we're going to be able to learn a lot from him. And without further ado, David Klein from Common Bond. Welcome on board today. Thanks, Alejandro. So before going into, into your experience as, um, as a founder, uh, David, I believe you were uh, before this, a consultant at McKinsey, and then you worked at Amex for uh, for quite a bit. So what were you doing uh, here? Sure. So at, at McKinsey, that's really where I started my professional career post-college. Uh, after a one-year stint teaching English in France, I came back to the States. Uh, I started a, a job at McKinsey, and I ended up advising uh, financial services clients. Uh, I was at McKinsey for three years and then decided to move from professional services into what I call the corporate trenches and get some implementation experience to complement a lot of the um, strategic thinking professional services work that's done at McKinsey or consulting firms in general. So I uh, ended up working, uh, ended up heading over to McKin um, American Express, uh, ended up working at American Express for about five years. and. According to plan, you know, picked up a lot of implementation experience, what the CEO of Amex at the time, Ken Chenault, called the executional quotient. Um, and so at McKinsey, I learned a lot around strategic thinking, problem disaggregation, problem solving. And at American Express, I learned a lot about the importance of execution, the importance of implementation. Uh, and so I, what I found is that combined, those two things are, are really helpful in, in building a business so that when I left American Express and ended up going to business school and using business school as an opportunity to incubate and accelerate an idea uh, and then run a company around that idea at or before graduation, uh, I felt uh, I felt well prepared. Got it. And, and I believe you went to Wharton. So you were doing your MBA there. And 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 I remember, you know, we've we've chatted about this. You you did the famous dropout thing. So what, what <laughs> happened here with the, with the dropping out of water? Yeah. So as alluded to before, uh, I went to business school with the express purpose of starting a company um, at or before graduation. Um, 
I decided to funnel all of the, the opportunity that tends to happen at business through that particular lens. And I feel like I was fortunate enough uh, such that after my first year of school, we had built enough momentum around Common Bond, the company that I ended up starting at, at Wharton and worked on with my, with my co-founders in school, you know, built enough momentum to justify dropping out. Uh, it was a big decision. Uh, you know, we didn't have, um, in the early days, nothing is too perfectly clear. Uh, you have to listen to your gut a lot, uh, and you have to make deci decisions based on that. And this dropout decision was one of those decisions where it just felt like, you know, on the one hand, it was kind of crazy to do. And on the other hand, it felt like the absolute right decision to make. And as it turns out, um, after dropping out, uh, and spending a significant amount of time, effort, and energy looking to raise that first round of capital, we, we ended up signing our first term sheet within two months. Uh, and, and I don't, uh, term sheet for equity capital financing. And, and I don't think that would have happened without dropping out and pouring so much maniacal focus in that part of, of business building. So, you know, from the moment I dropped out, even before raising that capital, I really haven't regretted that decision for a moment. It's not for everybody. Um, finishing school might have been right for for some, but for me, uh, that was that was the right decision, and I think it helped propel Common Bond to where it ultimately got to, and allowed us to to get to where we are today. Got it. And and we'll get into the into the actual financing in a bit. And by the way, I can't even imagine how the conversation went with your parents when you were telling them about dropping yeah. out. Well, but, my mother, uh, my mother still thinks I should go back to school and get my <laughs> master's in business administration, which I haven't had the either the heart to tell her or the the, the know-how to to communicate why that probably makes less sense now. Right, right. You know, I, I actually speak with a lot of people, you know, that that come to me and they say, "Hey, what what do you recommend? Should I go to business school or?" Or what should I do? And I, and I tell them, look, if you really want to learn business, yeah. you're going to go to, to business school and study, you know, how people did it. Why don't you do it yourself? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just a big believer on, on just doing it, you know, and, and, and I think the best MBA is just, is just launching your own business. But, but I guess that that's not for, for everyone. You know, to say a word on that, I, I get that question a good amount as well. And my answer is very similar. Um, uh, my answer is just do it. In other words, if you're really ready to start a company, just do it. Usually people start companies on topics that are a function of their life experience up until that point. Uh, I think the most important aspect of starting a business is less about what you're going to go start and more about whether you're ready to go start it. You know, the psychological readiness of an entrepreneur, I think, is the single most important predictor of future success. And if you feel uh, like you would rather, you know, be homeless and broke and sleep on your friend's couches just so you can start your company because you have that much passion, you have that much conviction, uh, that probably means you're ready to start a company. And that was very true in, in my case. All those things actually happened. I realized I uh, was ready to go broke. I was living out of a suitcase for four months. I was crashing on friends' couches because I had come to the realization that, uh, nothing was more important to me than getting the business off the ground, no matter what the consequences. Um, and it just so happened to be the right time when I was, you know, 
31, 32 years old. Um, but that can happen to anyone at any age, whether 17, 42, or, or 70. And so what I say is, hey, if you feel like your psychological readiness as an entrepreneur is, is set, now's the right time. If, however, your psychological readiness is not set, uh, then maybe you should think about what you need to do along your way. And I did that too. Uh, when I decided to drop out, uh, drop out, when I decided to leave American Express, um, I had a choice. I could have started a company and I chose the latter. I chose to go to business school. And that was actually the right decision for me. Just like dropping out was the right decision, so too was going to business school in the first place. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there, but, but hopefully that gives you a sense of what my own experience was uh, with, with this notion of when the right time to start a business is and whether you should go get your MBA as a free person. Yeah, no, and, and that's, that's fantastic. Thank you for that, David. And, and just to build on top of that, you were talking about life experiences. So, so that leads me to the, to the next question that I, that I wanted to ask you here. Like, how did you incubate? Like, what was the process of incubating Common Bond? How, how did it start? Mm -hmm. So it really started with my own personal experience with needing to pay my way through business school. Uh, it was very expensive and I needed to pay my way 100% with student loans. And in that process, I realized three things. One, interest rates were unnecessarily high. Two, the process was overly complex. And three, the customer service was pretty poor. Uh, and so I found a need in the market uh, to provide better rates uh, with, with a much better experience. And I realized there are a lot more people uh, other than me who had this pain. And so I took that personal experience. I connected it to my background in finance, uh, as well as my entrepreneurial ambitions and decided to dedicate myself to fixing all of that. And that's really how common bond was born. Um, I then used business school as an opportunity to do a lot of things. One, uh, write the business plan Two, put together my very first uh, set of market research. I was around 1,500 or so uh, folks like me who were in school or you know needed to pay their way with student loans or about to graduate and could benefit from refinancing to a lower rate. And so I used that as an opportunity to do a lot of interviews, focus groups, and market research. Um, I also used it as an opportunity to meet my co-founders. So I met my two co-founders, Jessup Sheen and Mike Terramina at, at Wharton. Uh, Jessup was a third year JD MBA. Mike was a first year at the time, just like me, uh, a first year MBA. Uh, and, and lastly, we used it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, start building. You know, we, we called up a lot of Wharton alumni as our first potential funders. Uh, it was at Wharton when we identified our, our, our student loan servicer that we would work with in, in the beginning. Um, it was there where we found a few of our first advisors. Um, and so that's really how Common Bond came to be. One, personal pain point. Uh, two, business model fleshing out. Three, meeting co-founders. Uh, four, starting to meet early investors. And five, starting to flesh out early operational pieces to, to the puzzle. Got it. Got it. Yeah, without a doubt, the um, the network that you can find on on this uh, on these types of of schools is is really amazing because ultimately the content you can you can access it online, 
but the the network is is really unbelievable. So I wanted to ask you, like, I remember, uh, and I think I I mentioned this to you. We 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 went for lunch a couple of months together, and uh, and I mentioned this to you that my co-founder actually went to I think it was your first office where you mm. guys had a bunch of ping pong tables. And and, yeah. and and I remember you you told me that you guys were even living there. So what yes. were those early days like? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, early early days was uh, was at business school, uh, building the company out. Then was was the dropout. That's when uh, I was living out of a suitcase for for four months and, and crashing on friends' couches here in New York and, and in Philadelphia, where we ended up launching our our pilot program. Um, and then once we got our first round of outside capital, we were able to get an office. Um, but we also wanted to be appropriately frugal uh, with the capital we now had. And so what we ended up doing myself, my, my operating co-founder at the time, Mike, and our first employee, Nate, uh, we ended up living out of the office. Uh, and we lived in that office for about a year and a half. Uh, before we, A, got another larger office because we were more people and needed more space, and B, got our own places to live uh, at this point individually. <laughs> uh, so that's really what Bomb was about that first you know, year plus four months plus another year and a half. So about the first three years from idea to incubation to initial launch, uh, it was on campus, on couches in the office. Wow, wow, wow! So, what it, what in essence is the um, the business model behind Common Bond, so that people that are listening get it? Sure. So, at a, at the highest level, uh, if you need student loans to go to school, or if you needed student loans to go to school and still have them, we can help. So if you're currently a student in school or about to go to school, we provide low-cost student loans to finance your education. If you've already graduated and you still have student loans, we offer the ability to refinance your student loans into a lower rate as well. And finally, uh, if you still have your student loan and you are gainfully employed, we have an employer platform of student loan benefits whereby uh, we provide employers the opportunity to pay down their employee student debt by, say, $100 a month. Uh, we also provide employers uh, technology that they in turn offer their employees that allow employees to understand their best repayment options. Sometimes it means refinance, but not always. Sometimes it might mean uh, the income-based repayment program through the federal government or public service loan forgiveness through the federal government or some obscure state-based program. Um, and so what we do in our mission, really founding mission, is to uh, help lower the cost of higher education in the U.S. And we do that by lowering the finance cost of going to school uh, while either still a student or post-graduation while you're still paying down your student debt. Got it. Got it. Really interesting. And and I guess, you know, it was it was the other day I had um, an interesting discussion. Uh, we did an interview with the founder of Betterment and we were talking about the um, operating in in regulated environments. And and it's not easy. So I guess from from your perspective, what have been some of those learnings? 
Sure. Uh, and we know John well, and he's done one heck of a job. He and his team have one, done one heck of a job of building out Betterment over, over the past few years um, on the asset management side of, of fintech. No doubt that if you are going to start a fintech, uh, you need to be well-versed in the regulatory landscape, and you need to know how to navigate it uh, pretty well. Um, this is something we take very seriously. We have taken it seriously from the start. In fact, our first hire, Nate, who I mentioned before, um, was, still is, uh, a lawyer. Uh, and so our first hire was, was a lawyer. Uh, and that's not typical of a startup, but um, for a startup that operates in a regulatory uh, environment, whether that's a financial startup or a healthcare startup, probably not a bad idea. Um, in terms of the, the learnings, I think it's something we've known from the very beginning, but it's been validated over time. And that is, um, A, take it very seriously. B, reach out to regulators early and often. C, stay ahead of the curve. So before regulators are even asking you to do things, you want to be doing things that are right by the consumer. And in fact, that's something we were able to do in our case. So before the CFPB came out and gave guidance to student loan uh, lenders, in particular student loan refinancers, around letting people know about the federal government student loan program and letting them know about protections that they had with the federal government loan before refinancing, we were already doing that. Um, and so I think, I think those th three things are really important. One, recognize you're in a regulated environment uh, and understand it expertly. Two, reach out to regulators early and often and see uh, or three, stay, stay ahead of the, stay ahead of the curve, uh, as relates to regulation and staying ahead of the curve is, is really easy. If you have a unifying principle or a guiding light, and that is do right by the customer. And, and that's something, frankly, that's come natural to us because we've done that from day one. Um, that was in large part what I was doing at McKinsey, helping large financial institutions. Think about how you keep customer centricity at the fore of everything you do. Uh, it's something that I believe in heavily. It's one of the reasons why I thought the student loan system was broken and I started Common Bond. Um, and that is do right by the customer. So for us, it was it was those three things. Got it. And, and just talking about that, how do you define customer centricity? Yeah, it's, it's actually thinking about the customer. Uh, when you're thinking about new products, think about it from the customer's perspective. When you're thinking about uh, operational processes, think about what the customer is going through. When you're thinking about customer care, think about the, the customer first. Everything should emanate from the customer. Even when you think about what, how you generate revenue and what your expenses should be, think about the customer first. Think about their experience. Think about what it should be and build around that. As simple as that sounds, that is not what the majority of companies do. Um, even the ones that say the words customer centricity. Um, it's got to be in your, frankly, I think it has to be in your founding DNA. Uh, I think when it's in your founding DNA, it finds itself in all of your processes and systems. It finds itself in the DNA of the people that you hire. It becomes one of the criteria you look for in the people that you hire. And those are the people that end, end up building the additional process and systems as you continue to grow and scale. So that that's what I that's what I mean when I talk about customer centricity. Love it, love it. And and in your case, you guys have done multiple uh, rounds of financing. So how much capital have you guys uh, raised so far that is uh, publicly uh, announced? 
Sure. So in our case, um, because we are a capital heavy business, we've actually um, raised, secured, closed uh, over four billion in capital. Now, important to distinguish of that four billion, 130 million has been equity, uh, and the rest has been debt capital or or lending capital. Um, and so we've had experience on the equity capital market side of the business and the debt capital market side of the business. On the equity capital market side, like I mentioned, we've raised about 130. To date, we've raised over five rounds. We've raised from a diverse set of investors. So if you look at who led our round in each of those five rounds, it's pretty much every type of investor in Amalgam. So the first round was led by an angel. The second round was led by an early stage VC, eShop. And the fifth round was led by a strategic. On the debt capital market side, uh, we've raised everything from warehouse line capacity from big banks like Goldman Sachs, Barclays, City, ING. Uh, to uh, sold loans whole to institutional buyers to uh, issued our own securitizations. Uh, and in three years since starting our securitization program, became a AAA issuer of, of bonds. And we have you know, household names buying our bonds, large insurance companies, asset managers, credit funds. So we're really, we're really um, plugged in to, to various parts of of the capital markets on both the equity and debt side, just given the nature of our, of our company. Got it. And I'm very happy that you made that distinction because in many instances, I've, I've actually, you know, been in conferences or, or speaking at panels where, where I heard, you know, and, and I don't want to disclose names, but, but basically a founder saying, oh, we've raised this amount of money. And, and it really sounds like a lot, but it's obviously, as you were saying, is, is those businesses are, are capital heavy on, on financing others and, and all of that stuff. And, and there is a really clear separation or a structure where certain amount is equity, as you were saying, and then the other amount is for financing some of your customers. So I guess I wanted to ask you here as a follow-up, like what does that structure, just like for the people that are not technically savvy on this, like just really quickly, 30,000 foot view of what sure. does that structure look like? Yeah, you can think of, you know, for those of you who, who aren't finance geeks, uh, you know, like me, um, what I would say is the equity side is something that I think everybody understands, right? It's the stuff we read about in TechCrunch and other announcements when folks raise money from VC firms, Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, General Catalyst, et cetera. Um, that's typically equity capital, almost always equity capital, that is working capital to operate the business. Keep the lights on, pay employees, invest in marketing and technology, etc. There's another kind of capital, and, and this is a type of capital that tends to be, uh, you know, that tends to be more narrow in scope and use and applied mostly to finance companies. Um, in our case, it's the capital we raise to fund the loans, given the nature of our business. And just like in our business, you can think about it this way. A company that everybody knows and understands, Warby Parker, they sell eyewear. It's a durable good. And in order to sell that durable good, they need inventory of raw materials. And then they need a, a, a factory to, to put together those raw materials, raw materials in the form of eyewear, frames and lenses. Um, a finance business like us, where we lend capital, um, is, really, is really no is no different. 
Um, we have inventory uh, that we keep in a warehouse, and then we put together in the form of a product that we sell to a consumer. But instead of keeping in a warehouse those raw materials like plastics and synthetics and gloss for uh, for uh, for eyewear, our raw material happens to be capital, and we hold that capital in what in finance are actually called warehouses. And when we need to draw down that raw material, that raw capital, to provide a customer with a loan, um, we in fact go to our warehouse, we take the raw material of capital, we put it together in the form of a loan, um, and, and provide it to our customer. So just as Warby Parker um, needs uh, cash to buy the raw materials and put it in the warehouse and then put it together just in time delivery for its consumers. We do the exact same thing, um, but our raw material happens to be capital. And that capital uh, happens to sound like big numbers. So when I say $4 billion, um, you know, that's because that's the raw material of capital we need to draw down from at the right time to meet customer demand for loans. Got it. That's a, that's incredibly helpful, um, David. And you were mentioning about your your equity round. So you've had angels, venture capital, uh, private equity, and I know that the, there's a lot of people here that are thinking about one route or the other. And more specifically, there's a lot of confusion when comparing venture capital with private equity. So I guess in your experience, like what what really differentiates one type of investor from the other? Yeah. You know, I'll be honest, they do have titles associated with them, uh, monikers, uh, but I think the lines blur more than the, uh, than the names might belie. But what I mean by that is at the end of the day, capital is capital. Uh, equity capital is equity capital. And equity capital is looking to fund um, the working capital of strong and growing businesses because that capital wants a return on itself, right? That capital wants to make money on itself. And, and so sometimes I think we get caught up in, you know, uh, PE versus growth stage VC or, or you know, uh, growth capital versus, versus VC capital. Um, the, the truth is I think where, I think what matters most um, is stage. That is to say, given the stage of company you are at, it might lead you to go talk to a certain type of equity investor more than the other. Um, and names that we give it, growth stage, early stage, PE, those are really just proxies for what stage of, of capital an investor is really in. And so what, what I would advise people to do is look beyond those names, look beyond VC, PE, um, and look more at, for every equity investor that exists, what stage of the company do they tend to invest in or want to invest in? Because what they're going to want and need to see from you and the business uh, will differ. And who you go to based on your stage will differ. So I'd say focus less on the name or title of, of an investor and more on what is typically the stage of company they invest in. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's all a matter of also the individual, what they're capable of, because in many instances, the, the founder really gets a too 
uh, distracted with the name of the of the firm, but then ultimately the the person that you work with and that is on your board, it's it's really going to make all the difference. And and in your case, you have a by the way, a fantastic investors. I see that that you have Social Capital, August Capital, Treveca Venture Partners, Nika Partners. You even have Bikram Pandit, who is the former CEO of Citigroup. So how did you meet these people? Yeah, you know, it, it changes every, it, it depends on who we're talking about. So um, Vikram Panda, as an example, is somebody I met through uh, one of our advisors, investors, and, and board members. Uh, Tribeca Venture Partners is, is actually, they, they led our Series A. Um, I actually met them through a law firm. You know, our first angel investor, uh, I met through um, a, a process whereby we were reaching out to a number of Wharton alumni. Uh, you know, social capital I met in our Series A round when Tribeca Venture Partners put in that term sheet and we were looking to fill out the round. Uh, it was one of the investors that Tribeca Venture Partners uh, suggested that uh, we reach out to, and and we did. Um, August Capital, I met through a friend and colleague in the space who knows a lot of uh, uh, equity investors in in fintech. Um, so you know, every investor has has its own story. Um, I think the I think the unifying theme here is um, always um, be looking to especially uh, in prep for fundraises and through fundraises, you know, really be open to meeting folks, really be proactive about getting introduction uh, to others from people who are already in your network, whether they be potential investors, current investors, advisors, current or prospective. You know, we, we, we did not start with uh, with the set of relationships we had today, we, we built that through just, you know, through rote, uh, through just a methodical approach to reaching out to many people, um, hearing lots of no's, uh, using those no's to improve our model and our pitch. You no, know, the no's, you're going to hear them all the time. But I find that to potentially get yourself closer to a yes as a founder, Social proof is critical. And I guess talking about that, in your experience, uh, David, what has been the best introduction, like the, the, the type mm -hmm. of, of introduction that would probably get you closer to the yes right off the bat? It's a good question. And as I hear that question, I think the introduction is one of several factors that lead to a potential yes. Um, and frankly, probably isn't even in the top quartile of factors required to maximize a yes. Um, you know, that being said, truth be told, I've been introduced to investors through other investors, through other entrepreneurs, through intermediaries, through mutual friends. I'd say you definitely want a warm connection. Um, but who that warm connection comes from, you know, people say it's it's better to come from a fellow entrepreneur than a fellow investor, than a service provider like a lawyer. Um, yeah. I, I haven't your team and your business. Um, and that's really what investors are going to invest in. Um, in the earlier stage, it probably has a lot to do with you and your team, your passion, your conviction, uh, as well as the space that you're in, 
whether it's large enough and the investor thinks it's exciting enough. As you proceed, it's going gonna, it's gonna to remain those things, but it's, but it's going to become more and more things like, does the business work? Have you found product market fit? What does unit economics look like? How close to profitability are you? Um, how much are you proving an ability to penetrate a large market? Uh, and that tends to be the direction of where things go as you continue to build the company out what, in terms of what investors are looking at or looking for. Got it. Got it. Well, that's, that's very helpful. You know, one of the things that, that, that I was like very much impressed in, uh, about you, David, is that I've seen you in public and also, uh, you know, we, we, we know each other and, and you are an unbelievable listener. I mean, the, I've seen you listen uh, to others, you know, in, in conversations in a way that it seems like you are literally like stealing the knowledge from people's brains. It's <laughs> unreal. So I, I, I want to ask you, being a founder and building and scaling things from nowhere, I mean, it, it's not an easy task and, and you've been there, you've done it. So what process do you normally follow to teach yourself new stuff that could support you really in dealing with potential challenges in the business? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I appreciate the comment. Um, your listeners are probably confused because they probably just heard me talk and talk and talk this whole time uh, and haven't observed uh, perhaps the, the same thing, the same thing you have, um, you know, and, and whether, whether I, I have what, what you're suggesting I do and the way I do is, is up for others to, to determine. I will say this, um, no doubt that listening to what other people have to say, not just what they're saying, but reading between the lines and understanding what they really mean is very important. Uh, that's the case in talking to investors, uh, when trying to understand what's important to them. That's the case in talking to new potential employees who you're looking to recruit on board, as well as current employees who you're looking to, to make and keep happy, uh, within the four corners of, of business objectives. Um, so, so no doubt, no doubt that that's important. It's important with, with, with regulators, uh, with industry players, um, so that what you do as a business um, squarely fits within what you need to be doing as, as a business. Um, you know, I don't know if you want me to say more, Alejandro, I'll, I'll pause there and see where you want me to, to take it, but there, there's, no, there's no doubt that um, truly hearing what the other side is trying to say both directly and, and, and between the lines is, is important to, to business building. Absolutely. And, and in this journey, I mean, did you find like any, any resources more helpful than others? You know, that's a good question. And, and it's a big question. And for my mind to even process that, I, I probably need to think about it in stages. So if I think about those early, early days, um, we just talked to a lot of people. Uh, we talked to a lot of customers. We did it through primary research. We did it through conversation. We did it through focus group and interviews. We talked to a lot of potential investors before we got our first yes. We talked to a lot of professors and advisors. We talked to a lot of regulators. We just talked to a lot of people. Um, and we learned something just about every time. At the, at the very least, we validated or, or were able to uh, invalidate. Uh, certain things in those conversations. And we were able to refine the model, refine the model, refine the model. We were also able to refine our pitch more and more and more. Uh, and it just made us stronger. That was really the early days. Um, 
And it went from refining the model and the pitch to then refining the operation. So once we got capital, it was about refining the operation. It was about, you know, now we were testing things out in market, whether it was on the marketing side, the operational side, the customer care side. And we heard from customers. We heard from customer behavior in, in marketing. And we, we listened to that and we refined, refined, refined more. Um, and we refined more until our operations started yielding some, some early signs of product market fit, some early signs of really effective, cost-effective marketing right. uh, or customer acquisition. Um, and, and so that's what it ended up becoming uh, and, and so on and, and so forth. Got it, got it. And, and, and to this note, and talking about listening, I mean, I'm sure that the, um, the, the board members that you've probably brought on board or the advisories that, that you also brought on board, I mean, probably they're off the charts. Um, and, I, and I trust, I, I very much trust, trust your judgment in that regard. So in your case, for example, what, what did you really look for in, in this, let's say, for example, board members to help you on this strategy at the top? Mm -hmm. It's a good question, you know, because when you're looking for investors in the company at various stages, the truth of the matter is whoever leads you around is likely going to be the person who joins your board. Uh, and I'll be honest, sometimes the person uh, who um, you want to take capital from or going to take capital from, that has a set of considerations and criteria um, that have some overlap, but are different than the holistic set of criteria you used for, used for a board member. And so you want to be able to understand what criteria are important to you when you raise capital and what criteria are important to you for a board member. Um, the more eyes wide open you are on those things, the more you can control for it to the extent possible as you raise money so that you're not too myopic around you know, choosing an investor based on that capital, that investor side only. You're also choosing an investor, certainly a lead investor, uh, from the perspective of a board member as well. Got it. Got it. <clears throat> and going back to Common Bond, David, where do you see the company? Uh, how do you see the company evolving as uh, you know as time goes on and and in the future? Where where do you see Common Bond in the future? Yeah, you know when we think about what we do today at a high level, we provide a best in class product and experience for people who are making the biggest financial decision they've made in their life up to this point. And that is around the student loan, whether a student going to school or a student who graduates with student debt, um, to take on a student loan, to refinance your student debt is the largest financial decision that you're making uh, relatively early in your financial life. And we wanna make sure not only are we getting that product and experience right, but we wanna make sure that we're providing you with the right set of financial products and services as you continue to grow and evolve in your own life. And so when I think about growth, when I think about scale, when I think about the future, that's a lot uh, of what I think about. And the way we've built our product set out today is we follow our customer. So we listen to our customer, we understand what their needs really are, and we build product around that. Up to this point, we have focused uh, exclusively on higher education finance. Um, but that doesn't mean we are precluded from staying in higher education finance. We believe there's a way to follow our customer over time. And I wouldn't be surprised if in 2019, that's the year you start seeing us provide products and services to the consumer that they really need. 
uh, might even be a little different than what you see from traditional. In fact, it will be different than what you see from traditional financial institutions. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And if you could go back, you know, uh, this is always a question that I ask the, um, the guests that we have on the show. So if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice, let's say in this case, before you were uh, launching a common bond, no? what would that be? It would probably be everything has a solution. You just can't see it yet. So have the confidence and the grace that the solution exists through all the ambiguity. Uh, that's one thing I think you realize the more you do this. And it's the one thing I think keeps you grounded as you continue to experience uh, more complex, um, you know, higher state-like problems to solve. Uh, you develop a muscle around, hey, even though we can't see the solution yet, we've had enough reps to build enough muscle uh, to know that we've seen this movie before. Uh, we know that the solution exists, even if we can't see it yet. So let's stay focused and grounded in that knowledge and that faith. Um, and, and it, and it typically, it typically works out, believe it or not. Um, that's the piece that, that I would say. Now I realize how ironic or coincidental that advice is because the truth is you are not I would dare say, cannot develop that muscle unless and until you go through it yourself. So I can sit here and pontificate all I want. I can provide advice going back for folks who are looking forward. The truth is folks are going to develop it. And I think they need to develop it for themselves uh, to go through those reps, to develop that pattern recognition, that confidence and that faith in themselves uh, to make them a stronger entrepreneur at the increasing levels of scale. I love it. I love it. So, David, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? So, I don't know how many people this goes to uh, yet, Alejandro, or how many people this could go to. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna approach this question with some caution. Um, <laughs> I will I will say this: um, if if you've listened to this podcast and, and you really want to get a hold of me, um, go ahead and, and email care at commonbond.co. That's C A R E at commonbond.co. Or uh, go to commonbond.co to look at our 1-800 number, um, have a call, and let them know you heard this podcast. Um, I gave very specific instruction to, to email CARE or call, call in to, to the CARE group to, to reach me directly, uh, and, and folks will direct you appropriately. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.